Hey everyone, welcome back to Project Ascribe. Uh, yeah, it has been too long since the last episode has dropped, and so here we are with another episode for you guys. Uh, hopefully it's something that you guys will be able to enjoy. A um, little bit of a life update. I've actually moved to Nashville uh, for ministry purposes, so uh, this was a while ago now that I, that I came out here. Uh, so it's kept me busy, uh, busy in the best way possible, but yeah, it's just meant that I have haven't been able to work on this podcast as much as I would have uh, as much as I would have liked to so uh, but we're back now and hopefully we'll be able to keep up uh, with the consistency here but um, as far as today goes just wanted to share this uh, share this message on God's faithfulness uh, that was recorded earlier this year uh, here in my time uh, in Nashville and so uh, in it we just talk about the faithfulness of God that God is faithful to do exactly what he said that he would do uh, even when we're unfaithful to him that God is faithful to do exactly what he said he would do so hopefully it's something that you guys enjoy hopefully it's something you'll be able to benefit from and uh, otherwise welcome back to Project Describe. Two things that um, I want to, that I hope that we, at least two things, and if, you, if the Lord teaches you something else, great, but two things that I hope that we all would get out of, out of tonight's message. One, God is faithful, that he is faithful to do exactly as he said he will do. If he said, if he comes out of his mouth, he will do it, right? He's faithful to do exactly what he says he will do. And two, that the Bible really does come together to tell one continuous story. That, you know, if, if we are confused about one, one passage, if we're trying to read one verse or something like that, and it's not making sense, just know that in time, as you read more, and as you study more, and as you sit at the feet of Jesus, and you ask him to teach you more, that you will see this overarching theme that, that starts from Genesis all the way through Revelation. The Bible tells one continuous story. And there's actually going to be several passages that we read through, both Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, so bear with me, I'm going to be kind of blitzing through, through both. Uh, I encourage you, write them down, write the verses down, and See this for yourself. Um, we're going to see this theme of God's faithfulness through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and you're going to see how, again, the, the Bible really does come together to tell one, one story. It's this collection of all these different books and all these different authors that God used to ultimately tell one story. And that's the story of Christ. Right. So with that being said, uh, let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're just going to read verses 1 through 4. And like I said, we'll be flipping around quite a bit. Um, but yeah, follow along. I promise you this will all, all tie together. This will all make sense. So Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And it says, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Okay, we'll stop there. So a little bit of you know, just very high-level uh, overview of what Paul is talking about in, in Romans. Uh, so he's writing to a group of believers in Rome, uh, and most of them are Gentiles. There are some Jewish believers that are there. And what Paul is doing is talking about, I mean, it's, of course, it's all about Christ and, you know, his salvation, the work that God does, 
how you know there's nothing that we can do to earn it, um, that when we are saved and we are chosen by God, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? So he's talking about, he, he goes very in-depth. It's like his medius letter of, of salvation, of re- what really takes place in, in salvation. And in this, he also begins to talk about the Jews, right? And so there's questions about, well, what about the Jews, right? Aren't they God's chosen people? Aren't they, you know, like, what about them? Do they still have salvation or not? And so he's beginning to answer some of these questions. As Paul, it seems at first, he begins to kind of maybe look like tear down uh, this relationship that God had with the Jews. He says it doesn't matter anymore, that none of that matters anymore. And so he then kind of anticipating what some of the people may be asking him. He says, well, before anybody says that God has completely forgotten about the Jews, let's stop there for a second. And let's talk about that. The Old Testament wasn't just, isn't just trash, right? There are the, the relationship that God has with the Jews isn't just trash or anything. That God hasn't necessarily forgotten about the Jews. And so that's kind of what he's trying to talk about here. That God hasn't necessarily just forgotten about them. There's still this plan that God has. Right? It's a very high level view, And of course, he goes much more into detail if you read the book of Romans uh, for yourself. So he talks about, you know, yeah, the, the, the Jews were the first ones to receive the word of God. The Jews were the first ones to receive this covenant of circumcision. The Jews were the first chosen people of God. So there's, yeah, there's benefit there. That's, that's amazing to be a chosen person of God. That's amazing to get the word of God first, right? That's, that's, that's a benefit. But then Paul brings up this question, well, what about their unfaithfulness? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? If, if God is in a relationship, if God has a covenant with someone and he's faithful to hold up his end of the bargain, but what if the other person isn't? Is that enough to get God to change his mind? Is that enough to get God to say, yeah, just kidding, I take it back? And Paul says, absolutely not. That God's, God is faithful regardless of the Jews' faithfulness or not. God is always faithful to hold up his end of the deal. He will always do so. Sorry. Goes on to say, that God be true and every human, uh, human being a liar, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. A uh, little bit of a tip, and we'll do this at the, at the end. If you ever see the words, as it is written, it's referring to something that is previously written. Right? Nothing shocking there. Right? If you ever see that, though, I know, mind-blowing, right? It's like, it's crazy to, I, who, who would have ever thought? Uh, but if you ever see that, though, go look it up. Why is it written there? What is the author quoting? In this point, whenever you see those words, whoever is writing that word is trying to point to something that was previously written to prove a point that he's currently making. So the point here that God is faithful, regardless of the Jews' unfaithfulness, let God be true and every human being a liar, in this verse that he uses to prove that point is obviously written somewhere before. If you ever see that in your Bible study, if you ever see that in your personal devotional time, don't just pass that. Slow down for a second. Go look it up. Who originally wrote that verse? Why was it originally written? And how does it connect with the verse, you know, or the passage or the story that's being currently written, right? And so we'll keep that in the back of your mind. We'll do that at the end, but just something for yourself for your own personal, your own personal time. So this point that Paul is trying to make, let's see if we can prove it. Right? This point that Paul is trying to make that God is faithful regardless uh, of, of the other person's faithfulness or unfaithfulness, is it really true that God is faithful no matter what? Is it really true that God will always hold up his end of the bargain regardless of what happens on the other end? Is he faithful to do that? Let's flip to 2 Samuel. And let's look at a, an occasion where God makes a promise 
And we'll see if the person on the other end is faithful to, to their end. And we'll see how God responds. So we're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, we're just going to read just a few verses here. And again, the point we're trying to prove, is God faithful? Yes or no? 2 Samuel chapter 7, let's go to verse 11. Uh, about halfway through verse 11, it's, there's a sentence that starts with, the Lord declares. And it says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your own, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. All right, let's stop right there. So what's happening in this story? So this is obviously thousands of years before Paul is writing this. This is a long time before Paul is, is writing this letter to the Romans. This particular passage in 2 Samuel is a story of David. Right? So this is King David. And what's happening in this chapter is David is chilling in his palace. Right? And so he's got this amazing palace. Now the beginning of the chapter talks about how he has rest from all of his enemies. So he's just hanging out. He's just relaxing. And he's just enjoying being a king. So he's living in this palace. And it seems as if like he's kind of looking out the window maybe. Or he just notices the, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle that covers the Ark of the Covenant, tabernacle being meaning like just a temporary dwelling, this tent, basically. And he says, he's kind of, he's, he's thinking, the wheels start turning. And he's like, how is it that I'm living in this palace? And yet the Ark of the Covenant that represents, this is the presence of God. This is the place where heaven meets earth, where God will meet earth. How is it that he gets a tent and I get a palace? says something isn't adding up here. God, God deserves something better. So David begins thinking, I want to build God a house, like a proper temple, like a proper place, uh, a proper dwelling place, a proper uh, place of worship. So as he's thinking this, he's, he's kind of formulating a plan. He's thinking about it. God sends the prophet Nathan to him, and he says this. What the, uh, the verse that we just read. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Basically, God's response to David is no. Not in a bad way. Kind of. He says, like, you've got too much blood on your hands. That's actually what he tells David, because he's a man of war. So he says, you've got too much blood on your You won't be the one to build a house for me. But, David, here's what I'm going to do. Instead of you building a house, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to actually build a house. And not using you, but I'm going to use your offspring. Now, something about the Old Testament. Whenever you see a promise in the Old Testament that God makes, it's usually fulfilled in two ways. One, in its immediate context, and two, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Right? And so in this immediate context, we know that David has a son named Solomon, who does end up building a magnificent temple where God would dwell in, in a, in a marvelous, marvelous way. So God, God did that. We know that part. But ultimately, what God just promised David is that the Son of God would be known as the Son of David. Is that Jesus will come through the lineage of David. There's only one king that we know of whose throne is established forever. It's Christ. So God makes an incredible promise to David. Without David, I, I don't think David fully realizes what he's just been promised. But when God says, I will raise up an offspring for you, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And he will be the one who will build my house. Who is ultimately building the house? It's Christ, head of the church. So God makes this promise, this twofold promise. One, Solomon will come through, build the temple, but ultimately this promise will be fulfilled in Christ. That's the promise that God is making him. That's, that's, a, that's a big promise. It's an amazing promise that he's making. But is David always faithful to God? Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we're going to read this whole chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And guys, I apologize in advance because we're about to look really, really bad. Yeah. Yes, I meant guys as in, like, actually guys, not everybody, but like, just guys. We're about to look really bad. Uh, yeah. It is what it is. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 11 says, In the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word back to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent uh, the word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left, his palace, left the palace, and a gift, was, uh, a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go to his own house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah and are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah, Uriah remained in Jerusalem the next day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went to sleep on his mat out among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, 
The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. The archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of your king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. All right. So, this is a famous story of David and Bathsheba. And a lot of times whenever we hear that story, all we think about is the adultery that David commits. But when you really pay attention to this story, David doesn't just commit adultery. He does a lot. The first thing that pops up right at the beginning of the verse, it says that at the time when kings go to war, right? In the springtime when kings are supposed to be off at war, Joab and his men are out and the king's men are out. But it says David remained at his palace. So it seems as if David isn't where he's supposed to be. David's back at the palace. But if you're supposed to be off at war with your army, why are you still at the palace? So David's not, it seems as if David's not where he's supposed to be in the first place. He's at the wrong place. And while he's at the wrong place, he's chilling in his palace, he's relaxing, he's doing his thing, he notices Bathsheba taking, he notices Bathsheba taking a bath. He begins to think about it. He begins to lust. And so he sends a messenger to Bathsheba. He says, go find out who that is. The messenger comes back with a message saying her name is Bathsheba and she's married to a man named Uriah. Mind you, David is already married as well too. So he sees this woman. He's intrigued. Sends a messenger. The messenger comes back with, that's a married woman. Then what does he do? He sends another messenger and he says, go get her. He sees her. He's not where he's supposed to be. He sees her. He begins to lust after her. He then acts on that lust, right? So it's not just all of a sudden like David just fell into this. This isn't accidental. David knew exactly what he was doing. He sent two messengers to her. She comes, he sleeps with her, and she leaves. He gets word that either she's pregnant or she's given birth. The word for pregnancy or conceived um, or like, you know, kind of like missing the period is, is all very similar in Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew. So it's hard to tell what exactly has happened. So in, in, you might notice in uh, verse, uh, verse 5, it says, The woman conceived and sent word saying, I'm pregnant. Right? So we're not sure, is it like, okay, did you give birth or did you like just miss the period or like are you just beginning to show? We're not exactly sure what's happened. But regardless of what has happened, David receives word about this and he says, oh, well, we can't have this. We can't have this. We can't have an illegitimate child just running around. We can't have people knowing about this. So what are we going to do about it? We're going to cover this up. How is David going to cover this up? He calls Uriah, right? He sends word to, to his army out there and he says, Job, can you do me a favor? Find Uriah the Hittite. Bring Uriah back. And when Uriah comes, how does he greet him? He's, he begins to ask him about the war. How's it going out there? Is it going good? You guys pressing the attack? You guys are doing so good. I'm so proud of you guys. You, guys, you know, Uriah, I'm also so proud of you. I wanted to call you back. Take a break. Relax. You've done enough. You've worked so hard. You've been fighting. You guys have been out there doing your thing. If everybody's doing, you know what? I'm glad you're back. Glad you're back safe. Why don't you go relax? And David's intentions become clear in Uriah's response. 
Why is David trying to send, you know, trying to bring Uriah back? Why is David trying to get Uriah to go home? He finds out that David, or that, uh, David finds out that Uriah doesn't go home. He sleeps at the, uh, at the palace gate. And when he brings him, Uriah's response is, how can I go home? When David asks him, why didn't you go home? I sent a gift for you. I, I, I brought you all the way back from, from this military campaign. Why didn't, you, why didn't you go home? And Uriah says, Man, you know, the, the Ark of the Covenant is out there. My commander's out there. The rest of the king's fighting men are out there. They're all sleeping on the cold, hard ground, and they're fighting for you, and they're fighting for this city, and this, that, and the other. And how can I go home and make love to my wife? How can I go home and enjoy the comforts of home? You start to see David's intentions. Because if Uriah goes home, and let's say Bathsheba isn't showing yet, and Uriah goes home and sleeps with his wife, and a couple months later, a baby pops out, guess what? It's not David's baby. It's no longer his problem. But if Uriah goes home and finds a pregnant wife, or finds a wife who has given birth, the law says he can kill her. Once again, not David's problem anymore. David is trying to cover this up. This is exactly what David's trying to do. And David knows exactly what he's doing. He says, I'm not going to deal with this problem. Get word that she's pregnant. Not mine. Couldn't be me. So he's going to bring Uriah back. Uriah, go take care of that. One way or another. So you see the disregard that David has. Right? He, he's done something. Now he's trying to cover it up. But Uriah isn't going home. Uriah is not cooperating with this plan. And so David says, okay, yeah, yeah, no, no, no problem. Understand, well, it's so noble of you. Good for you, good for you. Well, you know what? I'll tell you what. Why don't you come back tomorrow night? Let's eat, let's feast, let's, let's, let's relax. Here's what David is, David is thinking. This man was able to resist his wife while he was sober. But if I get him drunk, nah, ain't no way a man just coming home from the military is like, there's no way. There's no way. If I get him drunk, he's going to go home. And he's going to do exactly what I expect him to do. So he brings Uriah back. They eat. He gets Uriah drunk. Uriah still doesn't go home. Uriah sleeps back at the, at the palace gate once again. And David says, he, he gets news about that. Says, okay, he's not going to go home. If I can't cover this problem up, then I just need to eliminate the problem. Just need to eliminate it. So David writes a letter to Joab, the commander of his army. He says, Joab, here's what I'm doing. Uh, I'm going to send Uriah back to you. When Uriah gets back to you, uh, have a special assignment for him. Put him at the front where the fighting is fiercest. Go press, you know, press the attack on the city. Go fight, right? Go, go after them. Go as if like you're going like, you know, to take down the walls. And as soon as you get close, make sure that every one of you retreat except for him. It's a suicide mission. It's a suicide mission. It's like, this is what I want you to do, Joab. Just make sure you do that. You guys are, you know, pressing the attack on the city. The moment you get a little too close, the moment you get within range of their archers, the moment you get a little close, retreat. Run away. Right? Save the men, but make sure Uriah is front and center where the fighting is fierce. Make sure Uriah dies. He's not coming home. So he writes this letter, and he most likely folded that up and he sealed it with a signet ring, right? The kings would, that's kind of how they signed it, right? To make it official, they would take a ring, dip it in wax, and they would seal it. So it's to say, like, this is an official message from the king. And he takes that letter and he hands it right to Uriah. 
with Uriah. Thank you so much for coming. It's so good to see you. You know, I'm glad you were able to come get a few days rest. I'm going to send you back on to war. Make sure you, you guys keep pressing the attack. You guys are doing so great. By the way, if you don't mind, I, oh, before I forget, if you could just take this letter to Joab for me. Otherwise, you guys are doing great. We'll see you soon when you get back. All right? Cool. So he sends Uriah with his own death sentence. And I believe, it doesn't say this, but I believe that Uriah has no idea that he's carrying his own suicide mission. So Uriah takes this letter. He hands it to Joab. You can only imagine Joab opening this up going, <laughs> hmm. I don't know what you did, but all right. <laughs> just imagine. Just Joab is reading this. It's, it's, it's. Okay. Well, I hope you had a great time while you were home, uh, you know. And so Joab obeys the orders. They press the attack. They get close. But they didn't retreat fast enough. Can't retreat fast enough. Uriah dies, but not only does Uriah die in this nonsense suicidal mission, but it says that other people are killed in this mission. So David is now no longer responsible just for the death of Uriah, but for the death of these other men who had to go on this ridiculous mission for no reason. Joab knows this. Joab is like, oh, we messed this up. We didn't do this right. Only Uriah was supposed to die. He sends a messenger back to David and he says, okay, tell David this is what happened. But if he gets, if he gets angry and when he gets angry, because I know his temper is just going to flare up because we screwed up this mission. When his anger you know, flares up, just make sure you really emphasize this point. Uriah is dead though. <laughs> At least Uriah is dead. So the messenger goes and what's David's response? Sword devours one and it devours another. It's just war. It happens. That's his response. He says, send this to encourage Joab. Press the attack. You're doing great, sweetie. Keep it up. <laughs> That's it. Zero remorse. Zero. Because why? Now the problem that he was initially trying to cover up has now been eliminated. He got away with it. So he thinks. But of course, the chapter ends with God was watching the whole thing. There's, there's nothing that God didn't see. So was David faithful? There was nothing faithful about him. There's nothing faithful in that story. Not one time does David show remorse. Not one time does David like stop to think of like what it is that he's doing. Not one time does David stop to care about, it wasn't just Uriah who dies, but the other people who died as well. Not one time does David stop to consider Bathsheba. What's she thinking? What's she feeling? What's going on with her? David doesn't care. Not even a little bit. Let's all turn to Jeremiah chapter 33. Now at this point, if God had said to him, that's it, I'm done. Never mind. I don't think anybody would have been surprised. Right. After that, I don't think anybody would have been surprised if God was like, yeah, ain't no way the Son of God is going to be called the Son of David now. There's no way. I, I need to find somebody else. Right. Fast forward some five, six hundred years later. After David has died, Solomon has died, these people have passed. Okay. Now, what we're about to read in this context, Jerusalem has just been destroyed. The Babylonians are coming in. 
and they're coming in to take a bunch of people captive. Right? So this is the time of the, the, the uh, captivity where people are being led into exile. God was warning his people again and again and again and again, quit messing around with these idols. Quit worshiping these false gods. If you want to worship them, let them protect you. If you want to be with them, go ahead. But if you keep this up, if this continues to happen, Jerusalem will be laid waste. And I will send my chosen instrument, in this case Babylon, to take you captive. It doesn't end that way. There's always the, you know, the, the end is the, the restoration that he always talks about. But he kept warning his people prior to that again and again and again. Quit messing with these false gods. They do nothing for you. They won't satisfy you. They don't hear you. They can't speak to you. They can't provide for you. They certainly can't protect you. Quit messing with these idols. Israel failed to listen. And so God's instrument, Nebuchadnezzar, is raised up, comes in. They completely destroy the city. The temple that Solomon built completely destroyed. And now people are starting to be taken captive. They're being led away. So now in the midst of all this, if you can imagine Jeremiah and the other Israelites who remembered there was a covenant that God made. That there was supposed to be a king on the throne this whole time. That there was supposed to be this promised you know, uh, protection. There's supposed to be this promised relationship. Now Jerusalem is laid waste. It might look like God forgot his promise. If, if, you're, if you're thinking that God is always going to protect Jerusalem, and if that's what, God, I, I thought that's what you said. I thought that there was always supposed to be a king coming from David's lineage that would always be on the throne. I thought that the temple would never be destroyed. I thought that the glory of Jerusalem would always be known around this world. When I look at a city that's completely destroyed, it's very easy to think from our perspective and from their perspective, God either changed his mind, God forgot. You know, something happened where God was like, I'm, I'm done. And there's no hope anymore that what I see right now is complete, is it. And that's what a lot of people are crying out. And so God, in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 14, God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 33, verse 14, he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. So he's again pointing to this promise. That there's, this, there's this person that's coming that I promised back to David way back years before, hundreds of years before. This person is still coming. I haven't forgot. Regardless of what you see right now, I haven't forgot. Jump down to verse 20. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that the day and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David my servant and my covenant with the Levites who are priests ministering before me can be broken, and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. Listen to that for a second. God basically doubles down on this promise that he made. God doubles down on this promise. So he reminds everyone saying like, hey guys, like there, there's no possible way that I forgot. Okay, like just remember, this righteous branch is coming. The Lord our Savior will be his name. He is coming. The promise that I made to David, I did not forget about that. And then to make sure that the people of Israel know exactly that he's not playing any kinds of games, that he means exactly what he says. He almost makes a joke 
He almost makes a joke. And he says, this is the extent that you will have to go to for me to break my covenant that I had with David. He says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, if you and your little friends and your buddies, if you guys can break the covenant that I have with the day and the night, what's the covenant with the day and the night? When God created, you know, when you read the the creation account in Genesis 1, I think it's on day three or three or four day three or four one of those uh god creates it says that god creates yeah, two lights right one to govern the greater one to govern the day the lesser one to govern the night that's the sun and the moon right and we know now that as the earth rotates once about uh, every 24 hours that gives us the the sensation of day and night right as the earth rotates part of the earth is rotating away from the sun part of the earth is rotating towards the sun that gives us a sensation of day and night and God says to Jeremiah, if you guys can figure out a way to break the covenant that I have with the day and the night so that the day and the night don't come when they're supposed to. So that day and night doesn't come at its appointed times each and every day. Then my covenant with David can be broken. How do you stop the day and the night from coming at their appointed times. You gotta speed up the rotation of the earth, slow down the rotation of the earth, completely stop the rotation of the earth. You gotta blow up the moon, blow up the sun, blow up the earth. Take your option, take your pick. Which one is it that you wanna do? What God says to Jeremiah, he says, if you want me to break the promise that I made to David, you have to do the impossible. You have to do the impossible to get me, God, to do what's impossible for me, to break my covenant. If you want me to break my, if if you want this to happen, if you really think that I'm not going to come through on this promise, Jeremiah, you and your friends have to figure out how to blow up the earth, speed up the rotation of the earth, slow down the rotation of the earth, get rid of the moon, you know, take the earth out of orbit. You got to do something absolutely impossible For me, God, to do something that's impossible for me, which is to lie, to break the covenant that I already made. That's how serious God is about his word. That's how serious God is about a promise that he makes. When he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And the only way that someone's going to be able to get him to not be able to do it, to hold up his end of the bargain, you have to do something impossible. You have to do something as absurd as this. Jeremiah has no idea that the earth rotates once, 24 hour, once uh, you know, every 24 hours. They didn't know that back then. We know that now. And even though we know that now, we still can't do what God is saying to do in order to get the day and the night to not come at their appointed times. Can't do it. That's how serious God was about his word. When you fast forward to Matthew 21, when Jesus is riding into a city a week before his crucifixion, He's riding on a donkey's colt, and people are all lined up in the city with palm branches, shouting what? Hosanna to who? To the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. They began shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, meaning God did exactly what he said he was going to do. That the son of God would be known as the son of David. That David's unfaithfulness did not nullify God's faithfulness. So if you go back to Romans chapter 3, where we started, 
Did God do exactly what he said he would do? Yes. Was God faithful to hold up his end of the bargain? Yes. Was he still faithful even when David was unfaithful? Yes. Paul writes, verse 3, What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. At the beginning, I mentioned it's a good idea always to look up wherever you see that verse or wherever you see those words written, as it is written. You ever see that? It's always a good idea. Go look up where that verse was written or what, what, uh, what is it that Paul or whoever is quoting to see, okay, how is it, like, why is he quoting that verse? What is it that he's trying to quote? Or uh, what is it, um, what is the reason that he's trying to quote that? What's the thing that he's trying to prove? Right, again, the point that Paul is trying to prove here is that God is faithful regardless of man's faithfulness or unfaithfulness. God's gonna always hold up his end of the bargain. What does Paul quote to prove his point? Anybody have it written there? What's that? Psalm 51. Which psalm is that? Go to Psalm 51. And for those of you guys who have titles written on your psalms, someone could read that. Do you guys hear that? It's the psalm that David wrote in repentance when he got caught. When he got caught, when everything got exposed about what he did with Bathsheba, Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote when, he, when he's repenting. So it's the psalm that says, Create in me a clean heart. Cleanse me, Lord. Right? A broken and contrite spirit, Lord, you will never turn away. Here's my sacrifice. Lord, if you delighted in the sacrifices of oxen, I would bring them all to you, but you don't delight in that. When Paul is trying to prove this point, is God faithful, yes or no? And he's saying absolutely he is. He's quoting from one of the greatest acts of unfaithfulness to prove it. He points to David's story to say, absolutely God is faithful. Even if some people are unfaithful, God is always faithful. Look at what David did. Jesus was still known as the son of David. David was still known as the man after God's own heart. God was still faithful to do exactly what he said he would do. And when Paul wants to prove that point, he points to David. To one of the greatest acts of unfaithfulness that we know of in the Bible. So point being this. One, God is faithful. He will do exactly what he said he will do. Whether you measure up or not, it was never about you. It's always about him. He will always hold up his end of the bargain. Now, here's the thing. That, that is not a license to sin then. That is not a license to go live like David. That is not a license you know, to do what David, at least in that sense. There's other times where we can learn from David in a good way. Right? And of course, the, you know, read the rest of the book of Romans and Paul shuts that down immediately. Right? This license to sin. That's not it. None of us, hopefully none of us, wake up thinking, you know, how can I really hurt somebody I love today? Like, how can I just like, and I'm not talking about like slightly annoy or joke around or that sort of thing. Right? Like, I'm talking about like, how can I like hurt somebody I really love? 
That's what we do when we choose to sin. Right? If we use God's grace as a license to sin, that's exactly what we're doing. Like, you know what, God, today I'm, I'm, man, I'm going to look at that cross and I'm going to spit on it. I'm going to look at your sacrifice and say, it's all good. It doesn't matter. That's exactly what we do. So it's God's faithfulness, regardless of whether we're faithful or not, is not the license to sin. Yeah, I think we know that. And two, if we would really take the time to slow down and read the Word of God, I'm telling you what God will reveal to you is that this Bible tells one continuous story. Is that there are points to be made from the Old Testament to the New Testament that God is telling one big story that's about Him, His Son, and the work that He's doing. But when we take the time to really slow down and meditate on the Word of God and ask Him, Lord, you need to speak to me. I need to hear from you. He will do it. He will reveal all of this to you. I'm no one special. The only thing that I have ever done by God's grace is sat down and say, God, you got to teach me. I'll cry over this book. I don't cry much. Except when it comes to this. It's like the only thing that gets me emotional. It's this. If you would sit down and really ask him, speak to me, he will do it. He will do it. 